0: Well, if you want to join me uh, this morning in the passage that we're gonna be looking at, we're, of course, still in Luke. Uh, I think we'll be there for a little while yet. Um, and uh, we're gonna be looking really from around about verse 29 onwards. Last week, you'll remember, we looked at the subject of fear. And we noted at the very end that um, that fear of God is something that is really entirely appropriate. But that fear of God is removed when you encounter God as Father. Because fear of Father is not appropriate. And so Jesus says, fear God, and then says, fear not, your Father is pleased to give. And so we saw last week how really the progress in the spiritual life is a progress from fear to faith in a loving Father. This week, it just so happens because of the way that the passage unfolds, this week we're going to look at guilt in that huge triumvirate of enemies that we daily confront. Fear, guilt, and shame. Guilt this week is the subject of our study because we're going to look at what it was that Jesus said to the Pharisees in private over dinner. Here in verse 29, Jesus is just completing his his public proclamation. And he completes his public proclamation by saying that a word that he is sharing is is greater than the word that Jonah shared to the Ninevites when they repented and came to God, that his wisdom is greater than Solomon, that the Queen of Sheba came to listen to, that she might have her life transformed by it, a greater word than Jonah, a greater wisdom than Solomon. A word like a light that we set on a pedestal, says Jesus. And then in his final word he says, but let's remember that not all illumination is light. Not all understanding comes from revelation. And Jesus says, be sure that the light within you is not darkness. And maybe prompted by that final word, a Pharisee comes to Jesus and invites him into his home for dinner. And that's where we're gonna pick it up at verse 37. Just join me there as we read together. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee, noticing that Jesus did not wash before the meal, was surprised. Then the Lord said to him, now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people. Did the one who made the outside make the inside also? But give what is inside the dish to the poor and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees because you give God a tenth of your mints and rue and all kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves which men walk over without knowing it. Now next week, uh, we'll look somewhat at uh, the next group of people on which Jesus trains His sights, the teachers of the law, the Levites. But for this week, it's probably enough for us to look at what it is that Jesus is saying here to these Levites. They are lay people, they're not ordained, but they are the conservative believers among the people of God in the time of Jesus. They're the people who had a conservative reaction to the things of the world. They were people who had an evangelical view of the Scriptures. They were the people who believed that they needed to focus on the necessary moralities that they should call the rest of society to follow and to adhere to. And it was to this group of people that Jesus most regularly trained his sights and spoke his most challenging words. People who had become, in their conservative evangelicalism, had become self-righteous, People in their external observation of behavioral righteousness had become hypocritical because of course they had not addressed the struggles that were constantly raging in their hearts. And so Jesus speaks directly to these Pharisees and he begins by dealing with the thing that the Pharisee is first most surprised by. Jesus has not washed his hands. Now, we might be surprised by that too. You're supposed to wash your hands before dinner, aren't you? And the reason we say that, of course, is because we understand the nature of infection and we understand the importance of personal hygiene. But that's not why the Pharisees were washing their hands. Of course, modern science had not as yet indicated the idea of being able to transmit what often used to popularly be called germs from one another from hand to hand. No, what the Pharisees were doing when they went through the ritual ablutions was washing the sinful world and their contact with sinful people from their life. You see, what a Pharisee was doing when he was washing his hands before dinner was washing the sinful people from his life. And of course, Jesus would never do such a thing. And he would never show that he is part of a group of people who believe that that's the necessary thing to do. He came to seek and to save the lost, not to wash his hands of those who were lost in sin. Jesus was completely different from this group of people. And so he says, woe to you. He says it three times. Now when the Bible says reinforces something, the Bible will use two and maybe if it's really to be underlined, three times. And so if there was a prayer that a Jewish person really needed an answer to, they would pray it three times, like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane or Paul asking God to take away the thorn in his flesh. Three times I asked the Lord. This was a deeply held tradition within the Jewish mindset because if you were to establish the truth of anything, it was with the witness of two or three. And so Jesus gives the three woes. The first woe is again focusing on outward behaviour. The Pharisees would tithe to the the smallest amount of, of, of herbs being used to savour and season the food. They would tithe everything because in their pursuit of legalistic righteousness, they wanted to make sure that they had fulfilled everything, even the things not even mentioned in the Bible. And so they had protected themselves from from failing to keep the principal rules of the Old Testament by extending them to 613 rules to be kept every single day. Imagine how browbeaten and desperate you would be at the end of those days. These people had become foolish in their pursuit, their obsessive pursuit of external righteousness. And because, of course, they are human beings, they're finite. And because they're finite, they can only give the time and energy that they have available, which, of course, is finite. And if you're giving your time and energy on focusing on external behaviour, you can't give that time and energy to deal with what's going on inside. And so they're focusing on the outside rather than on the inside. And Jesus says, if you use your energy, your time to focus on the outside, of course the inside will never be dealt with. The inside of the cup is full of all kinds of greed and wickedness. Things that God would never countenance. But of course, they have no energy, they have no time, they they have no capacity to focus on what's going on on the inside. Jesus says, You should deal with what's going on on the inside, and your heart will be prompted to do the things that God would do because God loves justice. God loves to express and extend His love to others. God, in His mercy, is wanting to reach out to the desperate, those who, in the words of Luke, are called the poor, those we've spoken about before, those who crouch because of the burden of life. Whatever that burden is, it's a burden too much for them to bear. And because it's too much for them to bear, it is God's desire that he stands beside them to help them with that burden and he wants to do that through his people. You should give to the poor, says Jesus. And of course, because legalistic righteousness and behavioral purity is easily observed, you can quickly gain approval and accreditation for the way that you live. If we'd looked inside as these Pharisees, we would have, of course be drawn to humility because we would realize that we're nowhere near the calling of God in the Scriptures. But if we look to the external rules that we have created around these understandings of of what it is to be in relationship with God, then we can begin to pat ourselves on the back and before you know it, we're taking pride in being holy people. And when you are taking pride in being holy people, the next best thing you do is to look down on others who are not as holy as you. And so a prideful and critical spirit quickly emerges. And you can hear it in the homes of the Pharisees down through the ages as they judge others and reinforce their own status. You love the best seats and the prominence and the recognition for being good and godly, says Jesus. Jesus says, the problem with this is that the contamination within is much more serious than the contamination without. You see, the reason that the Pharisees were building this world of legalistic righteousness was because they were afraid of contamination. That's what started the whole discussion. You remember Jesus, is not washing his hands before the meal because he doesn't want to align himself with the Pharisees there who are washing the sinful world from their hands, who are washing the Gentiles from their hands, who are washing the sinful, the great unwashed from their hands. Jesus doesn't want to be identified with that group. That group is a group that is constantly withdrawing from the world and building a religious ghetto where people use the same language and dress in the same way and think in the same way and listen to the same music and, and do all the same things that are intended to reinforce the religious ghetto because we're afraid of everything that's outside of the ghetto. But you see, Jesus only ever withdrew from the world so as to be equipped to re-engage with the world. He never withdrew from the world to escape the contamination of the world. Jesus was not into retreating and creating a buttress and a fortress against the world. He knew That God, who of course was working in and through him at every moment, he knew that God was his strength and his refuge. And that he didn't need to build one because he already had one. He knew he didn't have to escape the world because the world was just a pussycat in comparison to the power of God's goodness and love and mercy. That the apparent power of an evil world was infinitesimally small in comparison to the goodness and the power of God's love. Jesus, you see, had a completely different worldview from the Pharisees. The Pharisees had darkness within and the darkness within made them see the world in a particular way. That's what Jesus says when he talks about this light within and the way in which that light within helps us to see the world around us. The Pharisees had a particular view of the world that meant that every time they looked at it, they judged it. Jesus had a view of the world which meant every time he looked at it, he loved it. of challenging, isn't it? So how are, we, how are we supposed to deal with all of this? How are we supposed to respond to this whole issue of God having a law and us supposed to be his people who represent his goodness and holiness in the world? How are we supposed to do it? If we're not supposed to do it like the Pharisees did, the the conservative evangelicals of the day, then, I mean, how are we supposed to do it? Well, fortunately, we have a Pharisee who was alive at the time of Jesus, who has left for us his reflections. He's left for us his testimony. At the time of Jesus, he was in the school of Gamaliel, the greatest of the rabbinical schools. He was being prepared for religious and civil leadership. He was at the very height of any young man within Israel and functioning within the party of the Pharisees was considered someone to be watched for great things in the future. And the Holy Spirit has seen fit, not only to save that Pharisee, but so transform his brilliant mind that he was able to record for us his reflections as he engaged with Jesus. First in those years in the desert, and then in those years active in mission, seeking, to bring the Gentiles into the people of God. That Pharisee named Paul is a Pharisee who will help us perhaps more than anybody with this weight of guilt that we so often feel when we don't live up to the standards that we've set for ourselves. Remember, the broad theme is deliverance and deliverance of course comes through revelation and it's going to be deliverance this morning also because it's deliverance from guilt that god wants for you today we might all fully ascribe to the idea that fear is something that we that we need to be delivered from but guilt I mean, it's quite useful when you've got children. (laughs) Guilt's quite a useful little cattle prod to get us in the right direction, isn't it? And maybe, maybe we're of the kind of religious addict disposition who has kind of got caught up in this obsessive understanding that guilt and forgiveness is something that you've got to keep on going over and over, picking over the same sores week by week. And if you are, then there's deliverance today. Turn with me to Romans chapter seven. Now, at the beginning of chapter seven, Paul the Pharisee has given us in the first six verses a very simple metaphor. A metaphor from two people being married and one person dying in the marriage and by that death, liberating the other person from the covenant that exists in that marriage. And all of us get that, all of us understand that. All of us know that with marriage comes freedom from the vows that were made at the beginning of that contract, at the beginning of that covenant. And Paul, of course, is simply saying this. Because you died with Christ on the cross, you've died to the terms of the agreement that put Christ on the cross. Which is, if you sin, you will die. Those are the terms of the agreement. But Christ has died, and in His death, those who have identified themselves with Him and invited Him to live in them by His Spirit have taken on his identity and therefore have died. Just turn to your neighbour and say, I'm, I'm already dead. And then you can look back and say, yeah, you look like it actually, yeah. So, so you're already dead. You're already dead if you know the Lord Jesus. Now that's tremendously important. Because, of course, the law has power over you all the time that you're alive. But once you're dead, you're no longer, this is the word that Paul uses, under the law. And you are free from the slave master that does the law's bidding and the slave master is called sin. Now you're gonna to have to go back and read chapter six to kind of get that, but that's basically what Paul says. Now eventually as a congregation, we're gonna to get to Romans, um, but Romans is like the Himalayas. You know, it's, uh, it's not for the faint-hearted. You're not gonna kind of just say, well, yeah, let's go for a hike today. Where should we go? Himalayas, let's go there. You know, the 14 highest mountains in the world, the so called 8,000 meter mountains, all of them are in the Himalayas. All the hardest mountains in the world to climb are in the Himalayas. The two hardest are called Annapurna and K2. Everest, easy by comparison. Annapurna and K2 are right here. This is probably Annapurna that we're looking at right now. Romans chapter seven, but you're you're capable. You've got the oxygen of the Spirit. You can get up there into those heights. Verse seven, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. Uh, there is a, there's a hotel in Houston that had to take a sign down from the balconies in this multi-story hotel. Now this, I, I forget how many stories there were in this hotel, but there, I think there's 14 or 15 stories on this, this hotel. And on each of the balconies, there was a sign said, do not fish from the balcony. Now most of the people on the 14th floor hadn't even thought of it. But what they were finding was that the lead weight that they were using to cast wasn't quite reaching the lake at the bottom and was swinging and smashing through the windows of people on the lower floors. And they didn't know what to do about it. It was becoming a real problem. Because, you know, people at the top there are, hold my beer and watch this. You know, it's like I can reach that lake down there. And you know do you know how they do you know how they stopped it? They took the sign down. They took the sign down. And because there was no law, nobody knew what sin was. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? Mm. Verse eight. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the covenant, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. Apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive, apart from the law. But then but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I doubt I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the covenant, by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment, put me to death. John Bunyan, when he was writing his amazing allegory called The the Pilgrim's Progress, and if you've never read it, please do. There are modern translations of it these days. It's undoubtedly one of the most important books outside of the Bible that's ever been written. Christian, as he's made his way through the narrow gate onto the road that leads to the city where God lives, he comes to the home of the teacher, the home of the interpreter, And the interpreter takes him to various different rooms in his house and reveals to him the things that he will need to learn and understand as he makes his journey with Jesus, for Jesus, to Jesus. And Christian looks in through one room. He he sees the door open and inside, there's a woman cleaning a room and she has a brush and she's sweeping the dusty floor, and as she sweeps the dusty floor, the dust just fills the room. The interpreter closes the door and he says, that room is a picture of the work of the law in your life. It's a work that helps you to understand what's there because it stirs it up within you. You wouldn't know what coveting was unless the law told you not to covet. You wouldn't know what stealing was unless the law told you not to steal. You wouldn't know what was right and wrong unless the law came to define for you right and wrong. But the problem is that now the whole room is full. And then the interpreter opens the door again and the the same scene unfolds but quite different. This time, the person cleaning the room is spreading water, just flicking water from a bucket onto the floor and then they sweep and the dust doesn't fill the room but the floor is cleaned. And the interpreter says, the water is grace and without grace, you can never be clean. Now if that's the only reason you read Pilgrim's Progress, go ahead and read it, it's amazing. So then, verse 12, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means but in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, that's what I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. These poor Pharisees, they would not look to their heart. They would not look to their heart. But here's a Pharisee who's looking to his heart and he's saying, I know I want to do the right thing, I simply can't do it. I want to give up those things that, that hold me, but I, I just don't know how. I want to be free from sin. I just don't know how to be free. And every time, I apply legalistic righteousness to myself. It only seems to make things worse. Verse 23 But I see another work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? In Roman law, of course, Paul's writing to Romans. In Roman law, in certain cases of murder, there was a particular way in which the convicted criminal was punished. Of course, if they murdered, their life would be taken from them. But in certain circumstances, in perhaps the most heinous of crimes, the murder victim was tied to the murderer, limb to limb, leg to leg, arm to arm, body to body. And the murderer was forced to walk with the victim tied to them, to the gallows. Imagine. Imagine the picture in the minds of the people who first read these words. Who will deliver me from this body of death I have this burden of death limb to limb leg to leg arm to arm torso to torso and i have to look face to face with death with death step by step every day i'm overwhelmed by it i feel wretched I want to give up these things, I just don't know how to give them. I know that I'm an addict to sin. Some people, the addiction is evident in the things that they consume. For others, it's an addiction in the way that they think and in the way that they behave, but it's still an addiction to sin, and I don't know how to be free from it. the Pharisees would have said, well, you better muscle up, brother. Because you've got a lot of carrying to do. Be a man. Be a woman. Be strong. Put to death all of these things in your own strength. And in your own strength, overcome them. Are you not strong enough? Are you not good enough? Don't you want it enough? Surely if you want it enough, it'll happen. Surely, if you could strive just a little bit more, you could overcome these addictions to sin. Surely, But no. What we need is deliverance. Who will deliver me? Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you know how it starts? Do you know how the deliverance starts? Now, if it was left to me, this is how it would start. God would say, okay, I know you're not very powerful, so I'll just give you a bit more power. How about that? And I'd say, great, how much power? And he said, well, you know, I'll I'll give you enough. And then it would be a lot to do with me learning how to get power from God and not power from myself, and I'd always be kind of thinking about how to do that. Maybe you're not like me. Maybe your default mechanism is not to be self-reliant. Hmm. Maybe. But this is the solution of God. The solution of Jesus. The solution of the good news. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation. You start with no condemnation And you say, wait a minute, that's not fair. What about that person over there? I mean, obviously it's okay for me not to be condemned because I'm quite good, but what about that person? I mean, it's okay, it's easy for you not to condemn me. I mean, you know, I just have the occasional bad thought. But there's these other people over here, what about them? Surely, there's no condemnation. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because all the condemning has been done. It's been done. And it's been done to Jesus on the cross and in His death, the condemnation has gone to the grave with Him. Can anyone say hallelujah? Isn't that amazing? There's no condemnation, no condemnation. Let's just remember what that means. It means there's no. (laughs) That's nothing, zilch, zero, nada, you know, all that. There's no condemnation. Now, of course, because you're evangelicals, you're allowed to condemn other people, but there's no... There's no condemnation. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so He condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Yeah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I don't know who's, who, who was the little one? Who, was that, was that? We love Aiden, don't we? Now, I wonder how many people have been brutalized by their religious upbringing, by their denominational background, by priests and pastors, prophets and popes, who've given them another message. But if you've heard any other message other than this one, not my message, the Scriptures themselves, then you have not received the good news. The good news really is good news. It really is good news. And it means that we can be people of good news. It means that we can be bearers of good news. It means that all of the requirements of the law are fully met in us because the spirit of holiness is making us holy. It's a completely different deal than applying our effort to making ourselves acceptable to God. We're already acceptable not by our work but by the work of him who loved us and gave himself for us. And so here we are. What would deliverance look like today? Well, deliverance would look like each of us being free from the self-condemnation that we wake up with because of the memories of what we've said and thought and felt the day before. It would mean that you and I are free from the internal stress that constantly besets people of religious heritage who hear A voice telling them that they have to strive harder to be more holy. What deliverance looks like today is a decision that perhaps you've made on numerous occasions in the past but a decision that you remake today that says, I'm gonna invite the Holy Spirit in to what it is that I do, to what it is that I'm thinking about, to what it is that I'm saying. And when I feel convicted, I'm not gonna allow it to tip into Condemnation because I'm going to just allow the Holy Spirit just to nudge me, and that nudging means that I invite Him to help me and strengthen me and empower me. Because those who walk by the Spirit do not live according to the sinful nature. That's what Paul says in Galatians 5 16. You simply don't do it, and so it is possible to find yourself growing in the life of the Spirit, which is the life of Jesus, which is the life of holiness. But it's not something that comes through human striving. It comes through human submission. And even though the mechanism within us is always set to striving, today you can uncover the switch afresh that says submission and allow the Lord to deal with the striving. Good news is always good news. Good news is good news every day in every situation. This good news, this gospel, is a good news that will continue to transform us, continues to transform me, as I'm sure it does you. And so today as Chris and the the team come, and why don't you bring them up here, Chris, and lead us out in our last little time of worship. As they come, why don't you come too and say, Lord, I'm wearied of striving I'm conscious, Lord, that, that I have been submitted to your Spirit in times past, but I've kind of gone back to the religious striving that gets me nowhere. And here's the thing. The thing that would prevent you from doing that is the pride of the Pharisee that wants to look good in the eyes of others rather than simply submit to the very thing that would set you free. So if that's you today, then during the worship time, come and the the prayer team will pray with you. You know the routine by now. I realize that for those of you up there on the shelf, it's a longer walk, but it's a worthwhile walk So let's do that today as we worship, let's stand together.